Heavenly Father, we have gathered here fully understanding that apart from your Holy Spirit, we will not be able to hear this word. We will not be able to understand it. And we certainly will not be able to live in accordance with it. And so we ask right now that you would be gracious with us, that you would cause your spirit to descend upon us as you did in Jerusalem at Pentecost and then again in Samaria. We want to be people so filled with the Holy Spirit, so overwhelmed with the love of Christ and so captivated by the gospel that we live resurrected lives now. We're so thankful that you sent your son to die so that sinners like us might have the resurrection and the life who is, in fact, Christ. Through this passage, Father, I pray that you would raise us up. Raise us up in our spirits that we might rightly battle sin. Raise us up in our love for Christ that we might rightly serve one another. And raise us up, Father, with this great hope that our end is not death, that we who are in Christ have been made alive spiritually, and that we, when He comes again, will receive new bodies to worship and glorify You forever and ever. So cause us to practice this well now. Cause us to practice in this time of worship, Father, that which we will be doing for all eternity, praising Your glorious name. I ask that You would do this to bless us that we might be a people made even more holy this hour. And I ask that you would do this for your holy name. You are so worthy of our praise. Cause us to listen well, Father, and praise you in that. I ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. The title of the sermon is Rise Up. Resurrection theme. Resuscitation living not as sinners, permeates this passage. And the Apostle Paul, we, he's now home in Tarsus. We left him there in verse 31. And so Luke, he redirects our attention back to Peter. And we're only going to get Peter for a couple more chapters, so you want to enjoy him, because for the rest of the book, it's going to be about the mission of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. And, and Luke, Dr. Luke wants to refocus again on the work the Holy Spirit is doing through the Apostle Peter. If you remember, we last saw Peter back in chapter 8 when he and John went to Samaria to testify and verify that in fact through Philip's testimony and the gospel that was proclaimed to the Samaritans that the Holy Spirit had been poured out and many were saved. And so we saw him go there and he laid hands upon them along with John and we had a, a second Pentecost or a Samaritan Pentecost of sorts. And then we're told here in verse 32 that Peter is here and there among them all. And, and so he's going about amongst the saints in the, in the, in the area of Judea and this is part of the Judean mission. Um, and he, he makes his way up the coast a little bit northwest of Jerusalem to Lydda and to Joppa, two cities very likely that Philip um, was made, when Philip made his way up to Caesarea, it is very likely that he not only passed through these cities, Lydda and Joppa, but he shared the gospel as well. And it's in these two cities that Dr. Luke is going to tell us about two supernatural miracles. One, a paralytic man by the name of Aeneas is given the power to rise up and walk after eight years of being paralyzed. And then we hear about a faithful servant named Tabitha. And she had died of an illness, and Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, raises her from the dead. Both miracles are extreme in nature, as the previous miracles were. And every single miracle, remember this, is given to us to testify to the validity and authenticity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're told again and again and again. But there's another reason, I think, here. It's to reveal the type of kingdom that this new king is reigning over. And for us, the believer, saved by grace through faith, what our expectations are of our lives in this new kingdom with this king and with his power. So testifying to the gospel, absolutely, and then telling us, well, what does this mean now? You know, most of you, if you were to pack up your bags and sell your house and move out of state, you would expect the place you go to to be a little bit different, maybe a lot different depending upon where you go. 
Well, if you've been saved by grace, you've been brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is your king, and there is power now accessible to you. And so life is supposed to be very different for those of us who are in Jesus. And praise God for that. So I'd like us to see how the believer, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, can do three things. Number one, rise from the paralysis of sin. Number two, rise from the selfishness of sin. And number three, rise from the effects of sin. Rising from the paralysis of sin, rising from the selfishness of sin, and rising from the effects of sin. The theme of this sermon is simple. Christians live in the resurrection power of Jesus. Christians live in the resurrection power of Jesus today and for all eternity. Let's look at the first point. Number one, how we are to rise from the paralysis of sin. Look at verse Look at verse 32 and 33 with me, please. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So while visiting the saints in Lydda, it's a town right down the road from the coastal city of of Joppa, Peter encounters a saint by the name of Aeneas, and he is a man who is paralyzed, bedridden, for eight long years. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get sick and I find myself in bed for more than a couple days, I can't wait to get out. This poor man is bedridden for eight years. Let that sink in. Luke does not tell us how he was paralyzed, but he does note the duration of time because he wants us to know this paralysis was not temporary. And therefore, the healing of him was super, super natural. Something only God through Christ could do. Look at verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he he rose. Now, the verbiage here is very specific. And it's intended to take us back in time. Certainly back to Acts chapter 3, where if you remember, Peter and John raised the paralytic at the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. But even more importantly... It's to take us back, I believe, to Luke chapter 5, when Jesus Christ our Lord, during his earthly ministry, he caused a man who was paralyzed also to be raised up and able to walk. In Luke chapter 5, we have a very similar situation. We're told that Pharisees and teachers from all over the area, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, had come to actually hear Jesus teach. And so Jesus is in the middle of one of his teachings, probably a great sermon given by our Lord. And there are men who hear that he's there, and they're so desperate to have a friend of theirs who was also paralyzed be touched and healed by Jesus. They climb up on top of the roof, they break apart the tiles, and they, you know the story, they lower the man down so that he's right in front of Jesus. That's trying to get God's attention. That's fantastic. We should be so eager in our attempts to get in the presence of God. Luke chapter 5, verse 19, they go up on the roof, they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. But instead of Jesus simply healing the man physically, which he easily could do because he's God, he does something extraordinary. Listen to this, because this is the parallel. I believe this is why Luke tells us of the healing in Lydda. When Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends and the faith of the man, he said to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. Now, they came there so that he could walk. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. What they didn't understand is what? Jesus is God. And so he can do that too. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now listen to this, verse 24 of Luke 5. But that you may know that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Almost the exact statement that Peter makes here in Acts 9. And immediately the man rose before them. He picked up his mat, and he went home glorifying God. And and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things this day. In other words, as Jesus healed the paralytics during his earthly ministry, he was revealing to all who had ears to hear that he had the power to also heal them of their sins, to forgive sinful man of his sins. So in Lydda... Through Peter, 
Listen closely. Jesus uses the same power to cause the same healing and convey the same message, but this time from heaven. In Luke chapter 5, he was doing it in the flesh on earth in his incarnate form. Now he's doing the same work, the same person through the Holy Spirit, but this time he's sitting upon his throne. Look at verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. That's important. He identifies Christ as the healing power. He's the one, and we know it comes through his spirit. And then he says, rise and make your bed. And he immediately rose. He immediately rose because he had been healed by the risen Lord. The same person using the same power that healed the paralytic in Luke 5, physically and spiritually, is now exercising that same power from heaven in Lydda on Aeneas physically and spiritually. And the result is miraculous. And that was the intention of the, of the, the miracle. This God-ordained impact. Look at verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, the man who had been paralyzed for eight years, he was well known, and they turned to the Lord. The multitudes in Lydda and Sharon, Sharon is this beautiful coastal plain that reaches from Lydda 30 miles all the way up to Caesarea. And throughout this entire area, all these people hear about this miracle and they turn to Christ to what? To be healed too. You say, what, were they all paralyzed? No, of course not. They turn to Christ to be healed of their sins because that's what Christ does. Infinitely more powerful and infinitely more glorious for you, my beloved, is that Christ heals your sins. Regardless of what your physical ailments may be, they turned to him. That emphasis is they repented and they placed their hope in the power of a resurrected Jesus to save and heal them too. Not only to heal their sins, but to enable them to live a resurrected life. Um, These should be comforting words for you if you know Christ. These should be very comforting words. If you're in Christ, then the Holy Spirit... Christ through the Holy Spirit at some time said to you, called you by name and said to you, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. If you know the Lord, that message came to you by grace through faith. Rise up, Christ says, from the old man and the old ways. Rise up and live as the new man or the new woman that you are in Christ. Rise up and live in the new way of righteousness set before you. In other words, the call to Aeneas is the call to every single Christian to live our lives today and every day and for all eternity in what? In the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Not the power of sin. So many of our days are dominated by temptations and thoughts and words and actions that are hateful to the Lord. And yet the same king who sits upon the throne gives us that same power to walk in righteousness. The power of of the resurrected King Jesus that enabled this man to walk after eight years to use his own legs, stand up on his own power, take care of his own bed, a bed that someone else had to take care of for him, has been given to you if you're in Jesus. And this means, my friends, if you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and you have been indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, then you too have been healed You've been healed. Your sins have been forgiven completely by God in Christ, paid in full by Christ on the cross. That means perfect sacrifice, perfect forgiveness. And therefore, you too are able, believe it or not, to use your new legs. You're able to stand on your own in Christ. You're able to make your own bed, standing and walking in righteousness, no longer enslaved to sin, And that is the hope of a resurrected life. No longer crippled, listen, no longer crippled by the debilitating effects of sin in your life. No longer allowing the sins that once held you bound to bind you today in Jesus. You have been set free. Romans chapter 6, we were buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that what? Listen with all your might. That we too might walk in newness of life. Resurrected life. Our old self was crucified with him so that we no longer are enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. You've been set free, my beloved. You were in jail. Christ came and he opened the door and he said, get out. Get out. Why stay? You're free and live as a free man or a free woman. 
So many Christians today, saved by grace, I truly believe they know the Lord, saved by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, still live as spiritual cripples. Eight years, nine years, ten years. Not embracing the very real power given to us by the resurrected Lord to live in the power of the resurrection this day, this very hour. My beloved, there is no sin in your life, no darkness in your heart, no offense to God that God has not already overcome and paid for in Christ. You know that? Not one. Not the most grievous one. Not the one that you think he could never forgive me for this. Paid for in full by Christ if you are in Christ. And if every sin in your life has been fully paid for by Jesus and perfectly forgiven by God, then the only way that sin can have sway over you today is if you raise it up. You've been raised up in Christ. The only way that sin can have power in your life is if you raise it up, if you give it life, if you give it power to walk with you. You breathe into it thoughts or time or attention. And I believe the primary reason many of us remain spiritual cripples in Christ is because we do not see, oh, how good it is to walk in righteousness. We do not see it. We believe it in our minds, but we don't believe it in our hearts. Therefore, we continue in sin. Listen to the psalmist. Psalm 128. Happy is everyone who fears the Lord. Happy is the one who walks in his ways. You shall be blessed, God said, and it shall be well with you. Obedience in Christ to God brings happiness, blessedness, joy. When we sin, we foolishly think that the sins that we practice will make us happier and bring us greater joy and greater peace. That's why we do the sins rather than holiness and obedience to God and the power in Christ. A dear brother of mine years ago, he, was, uh, he came to Christ addicted to his work. And after coming to Christ, this was the one area that really held him bound. He, he loved the money. He loved the power. He loved what... He was able to do with his family as a result of his job. He even used scripture verses to point out and justify excessive work. God calls us to work, yes. God blesses hard workers, yes. And he would use that to justify his neglect of his wife and his children and the ministry at his church. After hearing a sermon on how inordinate desires of good things, even work, can be destructive. He was rightly convicted. He confessed his sins to God and he started working in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord. You know what happened? His marriage got better. His relationship with his children improved. He found himself engaged with his brothers and sisters in Christ, engaged in the ministry at the church, and he was happier. He was more joyful. So how did that happen? Simple obedience to God. He pulled away from the sin of excessive work and came back to Christ. Why didn't our cripple man stay on his mat after Peter healed him? Why didn't he just lie there for another eight years? Because he was able to walk and he wanted to walk. In fact, it would have been strange if he said, oh, I can walk, but I'm just going to stay here. Why won't you, if you are in Christ, stay crippled in the sins that Jesus put to death in your life? Here's the reason. Because in the Spirit, you are able and you will want to obey God's Word and you will want to walk in righteousness. You will not stay there either. If Christ captivates your heart and He fills you with the Holy Spirit, you'll read the Word and say, I want to do this. I want to obey. I want to walk in righteousness. Oswald Chambers was right in saying this. Listen. Either God or sin must die in your life. Either God or sin must die in your life. If sin rules in you, God's life in you will be killed. If God rules in you, sin in you will be killed. Amen? That's what we want. All right, so first we see that we are called and equipped by Jesus himself to rise from the paralysis of sin. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then right now, today... You can confess those sins to God that you're still dabbling with, you're still struggling with, and be set free from them because Christ died for them. I want to show you something else. Number two, we are to rise from the selfishness of sin. So we're to rise from the paralysis of sin and we're to rise from the selfishness of sin. Look at verse 36. 
Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. That, that word means gazelle. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Verse 37, in those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So Luke tells us that in the city of Joppa, about 10 miles northwest of Lydda, this faithful disciple, this faithful servant of the Lord, she gets sick. We don't know how, but she gets sick. And as a result, she dies. And she's so dearly loved by the community because we learn, Luke tells us that she was full of good works and acts of charity. In other words, she was the type of church member you wanted. She was a blessing to the church. She was using her gifts and talents to serve Jesus Christ. So in keeping with their burial customs of the day, they prepared her body with oils and perfumes, and then they wrapped her in the burial garments, and then they placed her, they laid her in an upper room. There's great confusion as to why they did that, but most think that they, they understood they were going to go try to get Peter to help. Right? So she was there temporarily. That was not her burial place. Now, when some of the disciples in Joppa get wind that Peter is only 10 miles down the road, they make a beeline to go get him. Look at verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Verse 39, so Peter rose and went with him. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. So Peter wants to minister to the saints in Joppa, and he wants to continue to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ as he goes. So he goes without delay. He goes to the upper room where they take him, and he sees Tabitha there dead, lifeless. Now, it's important to note at this point in our storyline that in the entire New Testament, the only person that has ever raised someone from the dead was, in fact, Jesus Christ. No one else had yet, certainly not a disciple. Jesus exercised that power, if you remember the widow's son in Luke 7, of course, Lazarus in chapter 11. But the parallel resurrection, or probably more accurately, resuscitation, um, that it parallels this account was, you know, the daughter, Jairus' daughter, raises her up. In other words, what the disciples from Joppa are asking Peter to do is both extraordinary and it's filled with faith. They want Jesus, listen, from heaven to work through Peter by the Spirit to bring Tabitha back to life. Now, it's one thing for Christ to work through the Spirit to heal a crippled man or maybe cure someone who's sick. But to bring someone back from the dead, only Christ had done that. I imagine even Peter, as he made that 10-mile journey from Lydda to Joppa, was thinking to himself, Lord, are you going to do this? Are you going to use a sinner saved by grace like me to actually bring a dead person back to life? Verse 39, so Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So Peter goes to the upper room. He sees Tabitha's lifeless body lying there. And the room is filled with weeping widows. Those who had been truly blessed by Tabitha, by her good works and her acts of charity. And this is a very touching scene. And I'm so thankful that Luke in his historical record, he gives it to us. It tells us so much about Tabitha, does it not? It tells us about her ministry in Jesus Christ. Now, most of you know that widows in the first century, especially in the Mediterranean culture, um, they lived some of the most difficult, vulnerable lives in the society. Without a husband and without big government and social security, uh, they were dependent upon family and friends and the broader community to just sustain their lives. We saw that back in Acts chapter 6. And we also know that in the eyes of God, it was very important for His people to make sure that widows were cared for well. Very important to God. In fact, so important that right after God gives His people the Ten Commandments in, in Exodus chapter 20, two chapters later, this is how He instructs His people. Listen, Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. In other words, God's saying, I will protect them. I will care for them. Tabitha obviously took this command very seriously. 
and she spent her days caring and providing for the widows in her church. And one way Tabitha did that was by making clothes. So Peter enters the room. The widows reveal how loving and compassionate Tabitha was by, it's a very interesting verse, the latter part of verse 39. They say, Peter, look, look, look at what Tabitha did. Look at the latter part. Tunics and other garments that Tabitha made while she was with them. They said, look, these, these came from her. This is how much she loved us. This is how much she cared for us. Now this was, this was a great divine act of love, right? She didn't get in her car and drive down to Target and buy garments for these widows. Although that would have been kind too. She had to take her money, go out and buy material, and then with her own hands, make these garments. And there were multiple garments and multiple tunics for multiple widows, so she was obviously very, very busy. Luke highlights this generosity and love from this faithful servant of God, I believe, in order to highlight the selflessness of a true believer, that our hearts, born again by the living God, are to be selfless Two, her life was, we're told in verse 36, full of good works and acts of charity, acts of mercy. In other words, the good works and the mercy were not things that she did. This is who she was. She was a blood-bought, faithful servant of Jesus Christ, so captivated by the love of God in Jesus that it resulted in her putting, listen closely, the needs of others above her own. So that sounds very Christian. That is very Christian putting the needs of others above her own because she was so captivated by the love that God had for her in Jesus Christ. It resulted in her loving those that were precious to the Lord, her brothers and sisters in the church. It resulted in her loving the least and the last in that community, the widows. Luke tells us that the widows, they mourned and they wept because of the deep love they had for their departed sister in Christ. And the Lord Jesus, he would honor Tabitha's faithfulness and he would honor these mourning widows by bringing Tabitha back from the dead. My beloved Tabitha, she could have departed well at that moment in her life. Hmm? She could have entered into the presence of God for all eternity knowing that she had served Christ well, that she had lived a life worthy of the calling When you come to the final days of your life, will you be able to say the same? Will you be like Tabitha, who got sick and died? Will you be able to say, Lord, by your grace, through faith in your son, I have striven to live a faithful life, listen, and do the work you've given me to do? Will many gather at your bedside or your memorial service and mourn and wail over your passing, not just because you were a nice guy and not just because they loved you because you were a family member, but because you were such a God-given blessing in their lives, praying for them, serving them, spending time with them, using gifts for them, that they really, really do miss you because the love was so supernatural they gave to you. This is a question I believe is worth asking before we get too old. A question worth asking. How will your service in the Lord be remembered by others when you die? How will it be remembered? Will there be anything to remember? Will people be forced at your memorial service to scratch their head and say, I'm not quite sure. Not quite sure. Didn't see a lot of fruit. Will your eulogy sound more like Tabitha's or someone who never knew the resurrection power of Jesus Christ? My beloved, you want to be remembered at your memorial service for more than your smile or your good looks or your athletic accomplishments. You want to be known for more than your degrees or your career or your charismatic personality. You want to be known as Jesus Christ is known to us, someone who came to not to be served but to serve and give his life for many. What a great thing that someone could say about you in your last days. This person served many. Now, I'm not talking about earth-shattering accomplishments that the world would say, well, look what they did. I'm talking about simple service to one another. Tabitha is a seamstress, or at least she has that skill set. Maybe it was her trade, maybe not. Regardless, she used her talent to meet the needs of those in the church who had needs, specifically the widows. Question for you, how have you been gifted, my beloved? 
What untapped resources and talents are available to you that you can use to have the same eternal impact for the glory of God and your brothers and sisters here in this church? Just as Tabitha did there, what do you have? How are you gifted? What resources are available to you to look around and say, there are needs here, there are needs in my community, there are needs in my backyard that you can use to bless others? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 of the church, he said, there are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit. And then he said this, and to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each believer has been gifted by God for what purpose? The common good, the church of Jesus Christ. How can you use your gifts and your skill sets and your resources to love others as you would be loved? How can you? This is a question as a Christian, if you profess Christ, that you must ask and you must answer because it's not optional. It's not optional according to the word of God. Listen, with all your might, Tabitha was a faithful servant of Jesus because she was saved by grace through faith. If you are a faithful servant of Jesus, saved by grace through faith, then you have gifts and talents and resources that God has given you as a gift to bless others. You're a steward of that. They don't belong to you. You don't want to come before the Lord and say, you know, I never used them. Never once, Lord. Well, no, I take that back. I used them on myself, but I didn't use them on others. Oh, and that's what you told me to do, Lord. Hmm. That's not a conversation you want with Christ on that last day. The sinner saved by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit will use his or her resources to serve others. It will be your desire. It'll be your desire. You say, yes, I'm commanded to, but I want to. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And let us not grow weary of doing good, Paul said, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who what? Are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone and especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have many opportunities to do good to one another every day. The question is, will we take advantage of those opportunities when they arise, or will we allow the sin of self-centeredness, the sin of selfishness, my time, my money, my interests, my talents to govern us instead of the Spirit of the living God in us? When Tabitha was born again by the Spirit of Christ, she was raised up from the sin of self-centeredness. And as a result, she gave her life joyfully in the service of others. And I have no doubt that she was able to say, I discovered a secret to joy. I discovered a secret that it really is better to give than it is to receive. That there is really great joy in serving others. And so she gave and she served faithfully in Christ. All right, so... We are to rise from the paralysis of sin by walking in righteousness. We are to rise from the self-centeredness of sin by serving others. I got one more for you. I pray you're still with me. I'm doing okay on time, am I not? I'm doing all right. Yeah, encourage me. Number three, rise from the effects of sin. We're to rise from the paralysis of sin, rise from the self-centeredness of sin, and we can in Christ rise from the effects of sin. You had a chance to, to hear our catechetical question on sin. J.C. Ryle defines sin like this, a little bigger. Doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. A little more extensive. Doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. You say, can you simplify that? Oswald Chambers can, simply put, he said, sin is red-handed mutiny against God. That's, that's better. That helps me. Red-handed mutiny against God. Rebellion against God, my beloved, as you know, it ruins everything. It ruins everything. It ruins marriages, families, countries, leaders. But the worst consequence of sin is death physical and spiritual death. 
It's the reason that all creation groans and anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ who when he comes will put death, what? To death. We wait for that. When sin entered the garden, Adam and Eve, created by God to live sinless lives forever and ever, never to die, they ate from the fruit, and what happened? They died, physically and spiritually. They died because God is holy. Because God is holy and the source of all life. And because God is holy and the source of life and sin separates mankind from God, you cannot be separated from God and live. You can't be separated from that which sustains life and expect to live. That makes sense, does it not? I mean, people spend, my beloved, people spend years and tens of thousands of dollars training to summit Everest, the highest peak on earth. And the funny thing is, is when they make it to the top at that 29,000 foot level, they spend 30 minutes, maybe an hour max, and then they gotta, they gotta get right back down again. You say, well, why, why would you spend years and tens of thousands of dollars to get to the top of the world and only spend 30 minutes there? Because that place is what the climbers call the death zone. Well, you don't want to stay in the death zone too long if you want to live. One of the things that makes space travel, even today with all the technology, so inherently dangerous is that it is a lifeless environment. No oxygen, so you cannot breathe, and temperatures are a nice, balmy, minus 455 degrees Fahrenheit. Little cold, no oxygen. Space is a death zone for human beings. Sin, my beloved, sin puts mankind in the ultimate death zone. It is a condition of the heart that if not overcome by grace through faith in Jesus Christ results in, listen closely, not a hard statistic, 100% mortality. 100% of people in the death zone of sin who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save them die physically and die spiritually, period. No exception to the rule. Now, our faithful Saint Tabitha, she had been saved by grace through faith. She had been born again spiritually. She had been taken out of the death zone of sin and she had been delivered into the kingdom and light and life of Jesus Christ. So the question is, why did she die? If she was saved by Jesus, how did she end up dying? Well, the effects of Adam's curse. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Still held her body, her physical body. And therefore, when she became ill, she did die physically, but only physically. Her family and friends prepared her body for burial, and then they wait for Peter to arrive. And when Peter shows up in Joppa, he goes to the upper room, sees her lifeless body, and then Luke tells us in verse 40, look with me, Peter put them outside, all the widows that were mourning Tabitha's death. He puts them outside, and then what did he do? He knelt down and he prayed. He knelt down and he prayed. You know, we don't see that in the other miracles. So why did he do that? Why did he kneel down and pray? This man was healing the sick. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was seeing the Holy Spirit poured out. He healed a paralytic man days earlier. Why did he go down on his knees and pray? Because he had seen his master raise people from the dead, but he never had. And he did not know whether or not the Holy Spirit would be pleased to do that with Tabitha. This was new to Peter. So he knelt down. It's such a beautiful scene. He kneels down in that room all alone with Tabitha's lifeless body, and he asks God, Lord, if it's pleasing to you, make her alive again. If it pleases you, Lord, for your glory and for the testimony of the gospel, make Tabitha, your faithful servant, alive again. And then, verse 40, latter part, look with me. Turning to the body, he said, in all the power of the Holy Spirit, Tabitha, arise. Tabitha, cum. Now, a few years earlier, and just a few years earlier, Peter had heard his master say to Jairus' lifeless daughter something very similar. These are some really cool things in Scripture such a joy to be able to study it and bring it to you. Matthew chapter 5, listen. Jesus takes Jairus' daughters by the hand and says to her, she's dead, he says to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. In Aramaic, Peter would have said, Tabitha kum, only a single consonant differentiated those two words. 
What's the big deal? Latter part of verse 40. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Walking in the footsteps of his master, Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to bring this woman, this faithful servant, to resuscitate her and bring her lifeless body back to life, just as Jesus had Jairus' daughter. In other words, the consequences of sin that had taken Tabitha's physical life were given back to her by pure grace through Jesus Christ. She had breathed her last, and Christ said, Oh no, you will breathe again, and made her alive. Now how, how was Jesus able to do this? It was Jesus doing the work through the Holy Spirit. How was he able to do this? Most of us would say, well, but he's God. Right? I mean, God is the giver and taker of life. He's God. And that's not a wrong answer. It's just not a complete answer. Why was Jesus able to make this dead woman alive again? Jesus had the power through the Holy Spirit to work through Peter because it was Jesus, remember, who defeated the power of sin and death on the cross. Jesus, the second person of the holy triune God, had full authority to say to Peter, make her alive, and she became alive. Physical and spiritual death, Jesus Christ took upon himself on the cross so he can grant to whomever he pleases physical and spiritual life. He's king. He has that power because of the great sacrifice that he made. Remember what Paul wrote, Romans chapter 5, as one trespass, that's the sin of Adam, led to condemnation, led to death for all men, so one act of righteousness, what is that act? It's Jesus' death on the cross. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Justification and life. By receiving in his body on the cross the full wrath of God, the wrath that we justly deserved, Jesus overcame once and for all the stranglehold of sin and death that binds mankind. He said no more on the cross so that he could grant to us life. Now listen, physical life and spiritual life. Resurrected life now, resurrected life in the future. Physical resurrection in the future. His death on the cross accomplishes that and he gives that freely to whom? To all who repent and believe. To all who call upon the name of the Lord. Christ gives that freely by grace. That's why Jesus is able to say, Revelation chapter 1, He said to John, fear not. Oh, these are such powerful words. Listen with all your might. This is Christ speaking. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, Christ said, and behold, I'm alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus Christ has those keys. You afraid of death? Are you concerned about those last moments? Are you concerned about your life right now? Well, who should you go to? You should go to the one who has the power over death and Hades. And that is only Christ. The question I asked, and I hope you did too as a a good student of the Bible, is why here? Why resuscitate Tabitha? I don't think she wanted to come back. She lived a faithful life, and she wanted to be with the Lord. Those are going to be some great conversations, are they not? All those who resuscitated and said, so what was that like? What was that in-between period like? And were you really bummed that you were here? The answer, of course, is no, because more time to serve Christ. More time to serve Christ. But why Tabitha? Why through Peter? A few reasons and I'll close. First, I believe that Jesus raised Tabitha. I believe he raised her because she was such a great model of servanthood as a believer. She gave her life selflessly in the service of others. And Jesus would serve her in return by what? By giving her her life back. He had that power, and so he does. In other words, it was a testimony to the teaching that we already heard in Luke chapter 18 with the rich young ruler. Remember, the rich young ruler rejects the offer to follow Christ and store up his treasures in heaven. And then Peter turns to Jesus, Luke 18, 28, and he said to Jesus, see, speaking of the disciples, we left our homes and followed you, to which Jesus replied this, listen, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, by raising Tabitha, this faithful servant of the Lord, Jesus is affirming, he's affirming 
a life of service. He's affirming a life of sacrifice and selflessness, of giving yourself away so that others might be blessed. Now, many today who would hear this, they'd say, you know, I mean, Tabitha, we don't know how old she was, but she served and she served and she served. She got sick and she died. And she put her faith in Christ. Why didn't God keep her alive? That doesn't sound very good. I imagine some would say, like the rich young ruler, better she take her money instead of spending it on a material and building dress and making dresses for women, she should spend it on herself. At least then, if she died young, she could, we could say she lived a full life now. The world might say that, but Jesus shatters that lie by raising Tabitha's lifeless body and affirming, listen, that a life of service and sacrifice is the full life. It is the life well lived now, not what the world tells us. There's a second reason I believe that Jesus chose to raise Tabitha to life again. And it was, I think, his deep love for the widows. I mean, certainly Christ, the living God, is going to be in obedience to Exodus 22. When Peter arrives, the widows Tabitha had so faithfully served, they were in agony this morning. In the Greek, it's emphatic for the loss of their their sister. But upon the resurrection, look what Luke tells us in verse 41. She's raised up, and then Peter gave Tabitha his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And that, the, the language communicates, he presented her to them as a gift. A gift from whom? A gift from God. A gift from Jesus Christ. Right back to the widows who were mourning her death. She's alive. She's well. She's able to love them and be loved by them. She's able to enjoy them and be enjoyed by them. Like the prophet gave the widow of Zarephath back her son, and Jesus gave the widow of Nain back her son. So Peter, God through Peter, loves these widows of Joppa, and they give them back their beloved daughter, Tabitha. It was an act of of pure grace. I believe God loving widows well. There's one more, and I'll I'll close here. I, I think that the most important reason this happened We know the answer in verse 42. I believe that here, and the reason that Luke wrote about it, that Tabitha was raised so the gospel would go out, so more people would be saved. Look at verse 42. Very similar to what happened in Lydda, and it became known throughout all Joppa. What became known? That Tabitha, who was dead, is now alive. Well, that's going to make headlines, my beloved. That's a big news story. Not like the news stories we have here. This is big. Many believed in the Lord. And he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon a Tanner. We'll, we'll talk about Simon next week. But Peter, you know why Peter had to stay in Joppa? Because the, the harvest was plentiful. Many, many were coming to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. The impact of Tabitha's resuscitation was those living in Joppa Believing in Jesus Christ and what? Being made alive too. It had an effect that God was pleased with. Many repented of their sins. Many turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And many too were healed. They were made alive. Able to overcome the power of sin and death in their own lives. You see, every single miracle in the Bible, and especially those that are resurrection in nature, they all point to Jesus. They all point to Jesus because Jesus holds the keys of death. And he's the only one that has the power to raise us from that condemnation. Through his resurrection, through his death and resurrection, listen, Jesus forgives us of our sins and then he enables us to put our sin to death and walk in righteousness, to live a resurrected life. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus changes our hearts and gives us selfless hearts He takes the selfish heart made of stone and gives us selfless selfless hearts made of flesh so that we, like Tabitha, can live to serve rather than be served. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has the power to rescue you from the worst effect of sin, physical and spiritual death. It's the worst effect by far. Raising you from the dead spiritually by grace through faith and then promising this, You want to hang your hat on something, saints? This is a good one. To all who repent and believe, 
Not only will you be saved for eternity, but God, when he comes again in Christ, he's going to raise you from the dead and he's going to give you a new glorified body, a physical body that cannot perish, a physical body perfect for worshiping God forever and ever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye at the last trumpet. That's when Christ comes again in glory. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. Imperishable will be changed. For this perishable body, that's us now, must put on the imperishable. That's the glorified body. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, listen, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, you finished it, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to make your day. And if this is true, then Paul's counsel in verse 58 is how we are to live. Therefore, in light of this, he said, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain, my beloved. Live a life like Tabitha, and you will be pleased, and God will be pleased in you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for the great work that Jesus, you did through your Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter. I ask, Lord, that you would cause us to see that in the power of Christ, through your spirit, we can live like this too. Tabitha does not have to be an anomaly. We can live lives serving you. We can overcome the paralysis of sin in our life. And we can place our hope in the resurrection of being raised from the dead, spiritually right now in Christ, seated with him right now upon the throne, truly born again to live holy lives. And we can put our hope in that day when we see him face to face. And he gives us eternal glorified heavenly bodies perfectly made to worship him without sin forever and ever. Father, I I pray you would encourage us with this passage this morning and in so doing, be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.